Uh, well, this morning, uh, we want to continue our kind of mini-sermon series that we've been in here in the summer that I'm calling Covered from Fig Leaves to Robes of Righteousness. And each week, what we've been talking about is a different passage of Scripture that centers around and highlights a garment of some sort. And so we started by talking about fig leaves, and uh, we spent a week talking about sackcloth, and last week we talked about the armor of God, which is a little bit cheating because it was more figurative and metaphorical in language, but that's okay. Uh, but this week, I want to talk about Joseph. And Joseph, of course, is famous, at least for one garment, the coat of many colors, But there are two other times that garments are mentioned in his story. One is when he left his garment in the hands of Potiphar's wife and fled uh, sexual temptation. And the third, but less often spoken about, is when Pharaoh dressed Joseph in all the power and authority of the great superpower of his time, the state of Egypt. These three uh, passages, which speak about clothing in Joseph's life, serve to sort of highlight some important transitions in Joseph's life. Before we get to any of that, though, I want to I introduce you to Joseph's family by way of a story which I don't think gets talked about very much. I want us to go back to a scene on a plain in an ancient wilderness where his father, a man who was a con man by trade, named Jacob. And I don't think that that's a pretty provocative way to describe him, but I don't think it's unfair. Go back and read that story. How did he make, what's his stock in trade? He's a con man. This is what he is. This is how he made his living. He's many things besides, but he's a trickster. And somebody who you should check your pocket if you walk away from. (laughs) He's a con man named Jacob. He's traveling home And he is afraid for his very life because the reason why he had left home 20 years earlier was he had, through sheer con man art, had cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance. And Esau, when he left, was boiling mad. He wanted to kill Jacob, and Jacob had fled and had run away to be with his uncle, Laban. And there he met his wife, Rachel, Leah, got two other wives as well, Bilhah and Zilpah. He's had quite a time, over 20 years. His family has grown, where now he has traveling with a very sizable entourage. He ran away all by himself. And he is coming back now with herds and a large extended family, And as he's making his way home, he has a big problem. Esau still exists. He hasn't seen him or heard from Esau for 20 years. And I'll tell you, the Bible's very clear what Jacob expects when he gets home. He's expecting Esau to kill them all. (laughs) And so what he does, again, he's very clever, this Jacob, He divides up all of his herds, and he sends them ahead of him in little groups. And he tells the people, the herdsmen, when you find Esau, when you come upon him, tell them, these are a gift from your servant, Jacob. And they go ahead, and then here's the part that's really scandalous. 
Finally, Esau's coming. Joseph sees, uh, Jacob sees it. And here's what he does. He says, Bilhah, Zilpah, you and your kids go out in front. And then Leah, I want you and your kids to follow maybe like a football field behind them. And then Rachel and Joseph, you guys stand back here and just watch. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of one of his kids by Bilhah and Zilpah. Or put yourself in Leah's shoes. What did he just do? He just told everyone in that family exactly where they ranked. Rachel and Joseph, I love you more. If Esau descends upon us in a murderous rage, my hope is that Bilhah, Zilpah, those kids of mine that they bore, they'll be cut down first and maybe giving you a chance to escape. And Leah, you and your kids, I love you more than them, but maybe not as much as Rachel. (laughs) Guys, is this right? No. This is deeply wrong. It is sin. We're told twice in the New Testament that in God there is no partiality at all. He is not given to favoritism on the basis of things other than what we ought to show partiality for, which is true virtue. But what Jacob is demonstrating is a generational family sin. Uh, it, It goes on for quite some time. And in fact, Jacob learned it from his own parents. Who did Isaac love more? Well, the Bible says he loved Esau. And his mom, Rebekah, who did she love more? Jacob. They just felt greater affinity for them. They loved those kids more. It was no secret. Rebekah helped cheat Esau out of his birthright. (laughs) And now Jacob is both the victim of this family culture and the perpetrator of it, the perpetuator of it. And guys, I think if we really look at this family, I think this has been cleaned up a lot through flannel graphs and things like that, <laughs> coloring sheets. But the, story, the, the family into which Joseph was born, I mean, DHS should have been called. It was a mess. There, his brothers wiped out a whole city, killed everybody in Shechem because they didn't approve of something that their sister had either been involved in or had been done to her, depending on your interpretation. They have sexual sin, there is incredible violence, there is distrust, there is favoritism, there is abuse. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And Joseph's born right into the middle of it, and let's not try and clean it up. I, somebody, I, had to, I asked a fellow pastor the question, do you think it was a sin for Jacob to give Joseph the coat of many colors? And it's a more difficult question to answer than we might at first assume. I honestly don't know. But I do know this, his sin of favoritism certainly was. And it has real consequences in the life of this family. We find the first of, the, uh, of these garments I want to focus on. And the struggle is, the story of Joseph spans like 13 chapters in Genesis. 
And I can take a part of a verse and spend a month of Sundays on it. What are we going to do here? I don't know. Um, But I want to start here with this first one, the coat of many colors. We find this in Genesis 37, verse 3 and 4. It says, Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Joseph was the oldest of two sons who had been born to him by his wife, Rachel, who who he had especially loved. And again, the Bible has lots to say on this topic of favoritism. I don't want to spend too much time on it anymore, but... Again, Jacob is both the victim and the perpetuator of this family's generational sin of showing partiality, of loving one child more than another. Some sins are like that. They have a way of following a family from generation to generation. And even though Jacob had felt the sting of his own father preferring his brother to him, he does the same to his own sons. And his sons hate Joseph... Maybe not because of anything inherent in Joseph's personality, but because he was like a living reminder of their dad's favoritism. So that's the first garment we want to look at. And the second one is this. Here's what happens. Uh, Joseph is sent out to his brothers. We're told in the Bible that his brothers had been out watching the herds by a place called Shechem, which if we had been studying our way through the account, Shechem is the town that these brothers had wiped out. Uh, They had killed everyone living there. And then they take the herds back towards Shechem, and so we kind of get the sense reading between the line that Jacob is worried about his sons. They're sort of returning to the scene of the crime, and maybe their neighbors are going to come around, and maybe there's trouble, and I hope they're behaving themselves because they, the way Jacob said is, you've made us a stink in the land. And so he says, Joseph, I want you to go look in on your brothers, probably to check on their welfare. I'm worried about them. But also, I need a true accounting of how they're conducting themselves after what they did before. So Joseph goes... To see his brothers. And if, again, if we've been studying this account straight through, which we don't have time to now, Joseph has had two dreams, which I believe he, God required him to share because they were prophecy. They were not something for his own personal enjoyment. God was saying through Joseph what he was going to do, and Joseph uh, felt burdened by the responsibility to share that good vision with everyone. But we're told that his brothers hated both his dreams and his words. <laughs> so they hated what God had, was saying, and they hated that Joseph was the one saying it. They, they hated Joseph personally, and they didn't like one bit what God had said was going to happen. And what God had said was going to happen was that all of his brothers were going to bow down to him. Yeah, I'd hate that too. <laughs> I also have a younger brother. And if he came to me and said, I had a dream, hey, you're going to bow down to me. I'm like, yeah, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> so anyway, here comes Joseph. And what is Joseph wearing? They can see him from a long distance off. He's wearing his coat of many colors, the very costume of their dad's preferential love for him. 
and they are filled with homicidal rage. They say, look, here comes that dreamer. It's a literal quote. And when Joseph gets there, they've hatched a plan. Uh, First, they were just going to kill him. Like, let's just bonk him in the head with a rock or something. But then one of his brothers says, no, no, let's not do that. Let's throw him in a pit and then sell him into slavery. Which is the same as killing him in those days. It's just let's make a little money off of the deal on top of it. Why just kill him when there's no profit in that? We can do the same as killing him and uh, sell him into slavery. There's no coming back from that. He'll, we'll make some money. He does. He gets sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. And as fortune would have it, he is purchased as a slave by Potiphar, who's like the head of the CIA and the Secret Service, all rolled into one. You know, he's like captain of the guard. He's an important man. He's charged with uh, protecting the pharaoh. And Joseph handles himself very well. Uh, Some of you hate your job. (laughs) And the reason why I I know that uh, a lot of us will hate our jobs is because you're paid to do it. They would not be paying you to do your job if it was super fun. Uh, But think about Joseph. He's not paid to do his job. He is a literal slave. But we're told in the Bible that he handles himself with an excellent spirit so that Potiphar even notices it. He's like, man, I have won the jackpot in getting this guy as my slave. Everything prospers that he touches. And he puts Joseph in charge of everything in his house except for Mrs. Potiphar, right? So then we come upon this. Uh, now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Incidentally, we find the same description, form and appearance, being used to describe his mom, Rachel. I think he probably favored his mom. Like, if you had seen him, you'd probably say, boy, he looks a lot like his mom. He's just a good-looking fella. And uh, Rachel was also, we're told in the Bible, just a, a beautiful, attractive human being. And Joseph apparently gets that... Uh, some people, like me, you know, get that too. Some people just luck. We, we went out. Joseph's one of those guys. So Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, so this is not a one-time event, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. 
Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So far, both of these instances where the highlight, the garment of Joseph is highlighted, both of these garments were stripped from him and then misrepresented. Uh, in the case of his coat of many colors, what did they do? They, they, his brother said, well, we've sold him into slavery. What are we going to tell dad? And they said, well, let's take this stupid coat of his and let's dip it in goat's blood and we'll say, we found the coat, but no, Joseph, clearly some animal came and mauled him, killed him, dragged him off, and this is what we found. And that's what they did. So the coat of Joseph was taken from him, misrepresented to his dad. And here, his garment is stripped from him and misrepresented to Potiphar. It's being used to create a false story about him. And one thing, I think these two garments stand out in my mind, and I hope I don't put too much on the text here. But the coat of many colors and the garment that he left in the hands of Mrs. Potiphar, these garments represent uh, just the incredible deep brokenness of this world. There is sin here in abundance as we look at both of these garments. And there's lying. And, and Jesus himself was misrepresented in many ways. And what I want us to see is that Joseph is a kind of a prefiguring of Jesus. Uh, there's a reason why Genesis ends with these... Uh, whoever wrote Genesis, I think it was probably Moses, uh, although we're not told explicitly that that's true. Whoever wrote it spent more time on Joseph than they did on the fall even, or any other character in the entire story of Genesis. But interestingly, in terms of God's great redemptive plan... Honestly, the one through whom the bloodline of the Messiah would be furthered is Judah. And we find the story of how that happens in chapter 38. That's another story for another time. But Judah and Tamar is the union through which the bloodline of the Messiah would be further furthered. God, in his inspired word, does not neglect to tell us that story. But he is sandwiches that around 12 chapters devoted to Joseph and his story. Why? He starts with the story of the fall, and he ends the book of Genesis with this guy, Joseph, who, to me, is a very clear prefiguring of the Christ, who would say, essentially, what you intended for evil, God used for good so that many lives would be saved. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But let these two first garments, the coat of many colors and the garment left in the hands of Potiphar's wife, represent all of the fallen brokenness of this world. And let it also represent the one who was sent by his dad to go to his brothers. His brothers killed him by putting him in a pit. And then he rose out of that pit to reign. And again, we see a very clear prefiguring, I think, of Jesus in the book of Genesis. Uh, I've told this story before, but if you went to the Vincent Van Gogh Museum down in the basement, they have a whole wing of that museum dedicated not to his finished works of art, but to his illustrative sketches. If he was going to draw uh, a hand, 
um, he would fill an entire notebook with doing that hand over and over and over and over and over again, illustrative sketches. And then if you compare that to his finished work of art, it's the same. Uh, sometimes they've even studied how much within um, you know, very small measurements, and he's very precise. He, once he got his illustrative sketch down, he replicated it in his finished work. And what the Bible does is it does illustrative sketches all through that prepare us for the finished work of what Jesus did. And this is true here, I think, in the life of Joseph. I want to spend most of our time this morning on the third garment, uh, which in my Sunday school experience growing up as a kid got less press. (laughs) Uh, I heard a lot about the coat of many colors. I even heard about the Potiphar's house, even though that's scandalous and a tough thing to teach to little kids. Um, But less about this. What happens is, uh, after he's falsely accused, he goes into prison, and there the same thing happens. The people who run the prison notice an excellent spirit in Joseph. They actually put him in charge of the other prisoners, which the other prisoners probably loved him for, right? (laughs) Like, oh, you're the teacher's pet in the prison. That probably doesn't work out good either. Um, But one day he's there. And there are two other prisoners with him. One is the Pharaoh's baker, and the other is his cupbearer. And they've both had dreams. Apparently, they'd committed some offense. Pharaoh had thrown them in jail. They both had dreams. And Joseph, uh, they tell Joseph the dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams to them and says, you know, if you're ever returned to Pharaoh's good graces, will you please tell him about me? Plead my case to the highest court in the land, as it were. Uh, one of the two, the baker, uh, as his dream indicated, was put to death. Uh, but the cupbearer was returned to the good graces of the Pharaoh. And one day the Pharaoh had a dream, and it bothered him a lot. And then he had another dream that was very similar to it. He couldn't make hide nor hair of these dreams, didn't know what they meant, and called together all the wise people in the realm, the magicians, everybody who he might normally rely upon to interpret these dreams, and they got nothing. Absolutely nothing. So finally, the cupbearer, and and this is pretty risky, I think, for the cupbearer, right? He'd already been tossed in jail for something. He kind of sticks his neck out and says, "Uh, I know a guy who helped me interpret. Remember that time you got really mad at me? (laughs) Threw me in jail, and I was like, what's going to happen? And then I had a dream. It was crazy, and he interpreted it correctly. Everything happened just like he said. Pretty gutsy to remind the pharaoh of his earlier disfavor, probably. Uh, but Pharaoh is brought from prison. We're actually told they changed clothes. We're not going to highlight that, but he they did change his clothes, which makes sense. And then he's brought before the Pharaoh, and he does interpret the dreams. And what he says the dreams of Pharaoh mean is that there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be $5 gas, <laughs> and it's going to get real bad. No, then there's going to be a great famine in the land. The seven years of plenty are going to be consumed by seven lean years. This is what he says. This is what the dreams indicate. And he, not only does he interpret the dreams, but he tells Pharaoh what he ought to do about it. He says, for those seven fat years, you should really lay up every bit of grain you can against the seven bad years. And it really pleased Pharaoh pleased him. So this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of, the, of God? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Then in chapter 41, verse 53, we read, The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt." Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. In this last century alone, uh, even with all the advances in farming technology, increased food production, humanitarian and relief efforts, improved global food supply networks, 70 million people died from famine in this last century. 70 million. Wow. As awful as that is, it actually represents a huge improvement over the previous century. In the 1800s, more than 100 million people died in China alone from starvation. The further you go back in history, the more serious the specter of famine became. In fact, in the ancient world, entire civilizations were swallowed up and disappeared because of food supply issues, famines. In Joseph's time, Egypt was the greatest nation of its day, and the source of its strength was the Nile River, which flooded annually, creating some of the richest farmland on the planet that was known at the time. Egyptians are credited as being one of the first civilizations to produce agriculture on a large scale. The Nile's predictability and the fertile soils it provided, the good climate for growing, allowed the Egyptians to build an empire on the basis of great agricultural wealth. And the prospect of a famine was, I think, I wasn't back there, I didn't know, I don't, <laughs> I'm not an ancient Egyptian, I don't actually know, but my guess is, and this is pure Josh Tate speculation, so take it for what it's worth, but my guess is that the prospect of a famine was even more frightening to ancient Egyptians than, say, a stock market crash or another Great Depression, 
would be maybe to us as Americans. For Egyptians, the prospect of seven years of famine would not have just spoken about hunger and death, although those things are bad enough, but especially to Pharaoh, it probably would have also carried the added meaning of the unraveling of a great and stable society. It would have meant a complete collapse of social order, chaos. Such a thing could mark the end of Egypt. And so it's really no wonder that Pharaoh responded the way that he did. When he says, where can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God, Pharaoh uh, liked Joseph's plan, which is he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And then we come in chapter 41 to verse 55. I think arguably one of the most important verses of the whole Joseph account, again, although I do think it is highlighted less, says this, When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. I say this is one of the most important verses because once we see, as I believe he is, that Joseph is sort of an illustrative sketch of the coming work of Christ, this phrase from the king, if you come to me hungry, I will say, go to Joseph, do whatever he tells you, (laughs) is very uh, powerful and informative to us. Go to Joseph. Grain in that day equaled life, especially for those suffering in the midst of a famine. If you could get a hold of some, you and your family would live, and if you could not, you would probably die. Pharaoh has said to Joseph that he will be put over the whole nation, and nobody will do anything without his say-so. It is Joseph who presides over the granaries of Egypt. He is, in a very real sense, the dispenser of life. And when the people come to Pharaoh and they cry out to him for bread, what does he say to them? He says, go to Joseph. And if you're like me and you're in the habit of marking up your Bibles, for me, my Bible is just a work tool. I just, when I see something, I just put lines under it, I write next to it. Um, Go ahead and write down a few verses in the margins next to verse 55. The first is John six thirty three and 35, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then Jesus declared, this is verse 35 of John 6, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. A second verse to include there, if you're scribbling down next to verse 55, is John 14, 6, a very famous verse. You're probably aware of it. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Joseph is the bread of life, and he's the only show in town uh, in Egypt. Uh, If you went to Joseph, that was your only chance of getting what you needed for you and your family to live. And Jesus is the same, spiritually speaking. And of course, there are many parallels in this story between Joseph and Jesus. But to me, this is really just the most striking. 
Joseph, after being reunited with his brothers, says to them, God sent me before you to preserve life. And in John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And just as in Joseph's day, there is a famine in the land today. There is a great spiritual famine. In the past century, over 70 million people died of physical starvation around the world. But how many people died? Period. Died without Christ. How many billions died in that state in the past century? How many went to their graves to await the day of destruction when God's wrath will be poured out on them? There is a great famine in the land. Here in America, the land of plenty, we find ourselves in the midst of a great spiritual famine. And with each generation, the famine spreads and worsens. In Amos 8.11, it says, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Today we have that kind of a famine here in the United States. There are few people within the church today who would not say that America is growing darker and darker with each year that passes. In 1776, Americans declared their independence from King George III. And today we celebrate and flaunt our independence from the King of Kings. Wickedness and immorality born of lies are on the rise in America. Our people have forgotten God and have made gods of their appetites and follow after them. And today, very few of our national leaders make a habit of crediting God for the blessings and the freedoms we enjoy in this nation. We are a people who have eaten, become full, and forgotten God. And in forgetting God, our nation is plunging into darkness. We celebrate perversion. We openly advocate for the spreading of lies, teaching them to children. As a people, we reject our identities that come from God and determine our own identities, independent of who He is. There is a great spirit of confusion over America today, great moral confusion. And I think anybody who has eyes to see it would have trouble disputing the facts that that's true. There's a famine in the land. When the starving people cried out to Pharaoh, where did he send them that they and their families might live? Well, he sent them to Joseph. And where do we send starving people in the midst of this great spiritual famine? We go to the one who presides over the granaries of life, Jesus. It says of the grain collected under the supervision of Joseph that it was like the sand of the sea and could not even be measured. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Vast amounts of riches available. 
And the grain wasn't just for the Egyptians. It says that the famine spread over the entire world. People from all over came to Joseph, including, spoiler alert, his brothers. <laughs> they come down from Canaan. We're not going to have time to spend on that part of the story. Incidentally, if you're looking for something to spend time in your own personal devotions, I encourage you to read through the life of Joseph. It's a great read and a lot of um, we could spend a long time studying through the life of Joseph, and there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Uh, in addition to being rich and meaningful in its application to our lives, it's also just a great story. So I encourage you, if you're looking for something right now, that'd be a good thing to be reading. But this grain wasn't just for the Egyptians. The famine spread over the whole world, and Egypt had laid up enough grain that was sufficient for the need of the world. Again, we see pre-shadowings of Jesus and the riches of his grace, which are available even to cover the great need of the world. John 2.2 proclaims he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Vance Havner once said, Christians are the salt of the earth. We must be willing to be rubbed into the carcass of an unregenerate society. Salt must be brought into close contact with whatever it is meant to affect if it is to do any good. Uh, the church is the salt and the light, salt of the earth and the light of the world. And as the salt of the earth, we are called to engage society, to live a life of integrity and to speak up in praise of what is good and to speak out against evil. If America is ever laid to waste... Much of the blame will have to lie at the doors of the churches. The church has the answer to the great spiritual need of our people. In fact, at the risk of sounding arrogant, especially uh, to non-believers who might be hearing this, uh, the church is the only institution with the answer that is needed. The foundations on which our great republic have rested for these 246 years are crumbling. Our nation is caught up in a ruinous current that will surely lead to her destruction, and no amount of political strategizing, lobbying, and donations will address the cancer of the soul which is killing America. The church must understand that the only enduring source of hope for our people would come from revival, a general return to God. I do not pretend to know the mind of God. He raises nations up and scatters them according to his good purposes. And I don't know if he will have mercy on our people as he did the people of Nineveh. But like the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12.32, we, the church, this people within a people, should understand the times and know what God's people should do. I think we as American patriots will love our people best when we love God most. And in this hour in our nation's history, what our nation needs is not what they want. And whereas we would much rather stand shoulder to shoulder with our countrymen against enemies that are opposed against us, we sometimes have to be willing to bear the scorn of our countrymen for the sake of the kingdom first, but also for the good of the city where God has put us in these years of exile while we wait for the return of Christ. 
God has sprinkled his church over this land that we might function as salt in our society, preserving and slowing the rate of moral decay. And he has called us to be his light bearers that we might not just speak out, speak and act against the influences of evil, but that we might actively promote life and truth. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus describes the church as both salt and light, these are the two things he had in mind. Salt is a preservative. It's a, it counteracts the process of decay. And salt encourages growth. It flourishes. It causes things to flourish. So by saying the church is salt and light, it means that we are to be opposed to what is wicked, but also visibly, vocally advocate for what is right and good. We're not just naysayers. We don't just go around saying the things we're opposed to. We also have some things we love and are excited about. And I think sometimes churches fall off and like they're all light and no salt. They're all salt. They're no light. We need to somehow hold these two things together where we're not just opposed to stuff. There's things that we love and cherish and think are great, and we want to share them with anybody who will, who will pick up what we're laying down. And I think this is the, what we're called to do here as God's people, because there is this great famine in the land. So over the course of Joseph's life, we see the evidence of the, the rot, the sin that infects everything, his family first and foremost. And then we also see in his elevate, he's thrown into the pit, given up for dead, but he rises to reign. And he presides over the granary. And we see that now as representative of our own risen Lord who presides over life. And what's needed in the midst of this great spiritual famine is for people to go to Jesus and receive from him the bread of life. And uh, on this 4th of July, as we pray for our people, let's not forget to represent our King well in all of our interactions with our neighbors friends, co-workers, all of that.